Hi guys, a quick message. Inside the Groove, the Madonna Music Podcast has been nominated for a Queerty Award, the Queerties 2022, and now live. But I need you to vote. There's stiff competition from the Drag Race All-Stars, the Bald and the Beautiful, and heaps of other great queer podcasts. But oh, we need Madonna to win. We need to prove that Madonna and her music is still relevant in 2022. You can vote on each of your devices once a day, every day, up until February the 22nd. Just go to queerty.com forward slash queerties2022 and add your vote for Inside the Groove. Keep going back every day to vote and get on the forums, get on your socials, Instagram, Twitter, wherever, and tell other Madonna fans to vote for Inside the Groove at Queerties. Thank you so, so much. It's 2022, which marks 40 years since the release of Madonna's very first single, Everybody, in 1982. Last August, it was announced that her albums would be re-released with new versions curated by Madonna herself. What does that mean? Well, here on Inside the Groove, we're working through each of her albums one by one to tell the story of how they were recorded, written and produced, along with the iconic photography and graphic design. Bedtime Stories was Madonna's sixth studio album, released 25th of October 1994. Recorded throughout the first eight months of the year, it saw Madonna take a musical detour into a more ambient R&B-tinged style of music, which both reflected the American music scene at the time, whilst venturing into the sounds of British electronica. Number one in Australia, the album failed to reach the top of the charts elsewhere, though its most recent certification of 8 million units as of 2017 saw it reach a wider audience than its predecessor, Erotica. Written and produced with a collection of producers including Dallas Austin, Nelly Hooper and Babyface, Madonna's biggest task for this record was to create a cohesive sound as well as finding a way to regain an audience whilst remaining with absolutely no regrets. I'll be telling the story of how Madonna managed to turn around the bad publicity from certain areas to produce one of her biggest singles ever, along with details about the cover photography and design, including the original jettisoned version, and of course, the album that never was. I'll be playing you the individual parts from album track I'd Rather Be Your Lover, including Madonna's harmonies, the sample used in the song, and an unused rap by Tupac. Throwing focus on the song Take a Bow, you're going to hear Madonna's raw vocals for that song as you learn about one of Madonna's most underrated eras. So for now, sit back, relax. How was I to know which way the story'd go as we go inside the groove? Welcome back to this podcast, which has now amassed 
over 60 episodes. There's a lot of information already out there about Madonna's songs, and I urge you to listen to the episodes on the song Bedtime Story for details of how that track came about and Madonna's engagement of British producer Nellie Hooper as a sort of executive producer on the album. Plus also the episode on Secret, surely a favourite song amongst a huge number of fans. On that podcast, I tell the story of Madonna's working with Dallas Austin. But Bedtime Stories is such a rich album with a heap of songwriters and producers involved. There's still a lot more to talk about. But for those of you new to the Inside the Groove journey, you might not be aware that Madonna started recording a follow-up to Erotica with Shep Pettibone, creating around a half a dozen songs which he described as being in a Spinners style, referencing the band Detroit Spinners from the early 1970s. As we know, at some point, however, Madonna decided to change direction, possibly following the success of the Patrick Leonard-produced I'll Remember, which reached number two on the US Billboard Hot 100. At some point, post-finishing the Girly Show tour in December 1993, Madonna began working on her next album, this time with a very definite intention to repair the damage done to her reputation by the misunderstanding of Erotica and the sex book. I'm joined now by Lucy O'Brien, who is the author of the Madonna biography, Like an Icon. Hello, Lucy. I have to ask you, do you think this new album was a deliberate attempt to soften her image? And do you think that she achieved that? Yes, I think she definitely wanted to soften her image. Um, She went through quite a crisis after the sex book. I think it it really rebounded on her. She, She was taken aback by the what she saw as as judgment and vitriol. I mean, it's funny in a way because you think, well, actually what you were doing was incredibly provocative. But I think because of the kind of circles that she mixed in and the really club crowd that she hung with, I don't think she quite realised how this would play out in middle America and, you know, the backlash that would come her way. So with bedtime stories, there was this sense of retreat and maybe rethinking things, going for a much more subtle sound, subtle persona. She had that very soft sort of Jean Harlow look, that lovely song Secret. It's one of my favourite songs, very languid, very looping. And then, but also on that record, there's Human Nature, which is so kind of stark. And I love that kind of, almost slaps you in the face. <laughs> um, <laughs> that sense of, oh, you know, I can't talk about sex. And that's that's her kind of clapback in a way. But the rest of the album is much softer. And interestingly, so I spoke to Marius de Vries who worked with Nellie Hooper on, on some of those tracks, the more sort of electronic alternative tracks where, in fact, Bedtime Story, which famously Bjork wrote and was very mischievously put in the line, Let's get unconscious, baby, because she thought Madonna could do with, you know, loosening up a little bit creatively. Yet, I remember Marys DeFree saying this was kind of, um, album was a transitional one. It was like embryonic Madonna. Like it, it, it was the birth into a sort of new style and a new sound and much mm-hmm. more kind of European, much more electronic influences mm. there. Mm, definitely. Definitely. Thank you so much, Lucy, uh, for your input there. 
Listeners of this podcast will know that I love the Bedtime Stories album and that it reminds me of living in Paris around the time it was released. It was a very exciting time in my life. I think a few years ago I went back to Bedtime Stories. I bought the vinyl and thought, wow, can't wait to listen to this. And it didn't really do it for me. I don't know why. But I've listened to it again recently and I I do absolutely love it. Yes, everything's a bit laid back. Um, Some of the R&B tinge stuff has not aged particularly well, but the songs are really, really, really strong. And you've got some fantastic hits like Secrets and obviously Take a Bow, but album tracks like Love Tried to Welcome Me and I'd Rather Be Your Lover, Inside of Me, they're just, they're fantastic. It really has stood the test of time. Madonna's voice is really strong. Remember, this is pre-Evita training, but her songs are examples of just what a finely crafted talent she has for harmony, for melody and for lyrics. One of my favourites is I'd Rather Be Your Lover, which contains a sample, It's Your Thing, by the Isley Brothers, performed by Lou Donaldson. He is kind of a version of the sample on its own, played around with. I'd Rather Be Your Lover is one of many songs co-produced with Dave Hall, and it features those beautiful Madonna melodies. I could be your mother, we could be friends, I'd even be your brother, but I... Listen to those harmonies. Listening to the motor track, once again, it appears the lead vocal was recorded out loud. I don't know where I stand with you. You can hear the backing track quite loudly, suggesting Madonna is listening to it without headphones. And listen to the rest of the track. It features at least two bass guitars, several electric guitars, and a Rhodes piano, not to mention some luscious strings, which get buried in the mix. And of course, there's some very 90s drum programming. Of course, Madonna's beautiful harmonies as ever. Other tracks produced by Dave Hall on Bedtime Stories include Inside of Me, Love Tried to Welcome Me, and the beautiful, brilliant Human Nature song that Madonna still performs live regularly today. Sticking to a tried and tested formula, Dave Hall wasn't a particularly experienced producer when Madonna chose to work with him. Though his standout work, I guess, up until this point had been the Mary J. Blige album, What's the 411, which was released in 1992. To my ears, his R&B backing tracks, along with Madonna's beautiful melodies, makes for such a strong pairing. And he'd go on to co-write and produce Fantasy for Mariah Carey. Surely that's got to be one of the best songs of the 90s, if not of all time. It's such a shame he and Madonna never worked together, as I believe that he's a really underappreciated part of her musical history. The song, of course, features a rap by Maverick record signing Michelle under Giocello. However, it appears that she may not have been the original choice. Hidden on the multi-track, and certainly on a leaked demo, is rapper Tupac, Madonna's one-time boyfriend. Have a listen to this. Don't trip off what they lip say, even when the media is getting greedier, you make the hips sway, creeping with the blonde ambition. I caught you peeping and I ain't sleeping, got you freaking through the whole weekend. Frankly speaking, is a passion or just the heat, got you trying to get me all up in your set. 
Why did Tupac go? Who knows? Maybe it was contractual. Maybe once he became ex-Madonna boyfriend, the desire to have him on the record was less. Here's Michelle's uh, unwrap in isolation a little. And some more Madonna harmonies. Let's pull down the faders and listen to more of the parts in isolation. As you can hear, we've got even more Tupac. I'll leave this running to the end of the tape. Hey, check this out, though. <laughs> You need to have a thug all up in the video and just do it like this. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> With his hands on his Captain Dick. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Mr. Tupac. Your input is welcome as ever. Okay, I'm joined now by fashion photographer Jonathan Daniel Price and graphic designer Peter Falloon. And we're going to discuss bedtime stories. Of course, that upside down cover, or was it? the abandoned cover shoot, and the singles. Jonathan, this is another Patrick de Marchelier uh, photo shoot, I believe. Well, you're right. It is Patrick de Marchelier, and we have referenced him before as he shot with Madonna already in another episode we spoke about on the Justify My Love single cover artwork. It was art directed by Fabian Barron, who, of course, we also spoke in the episode about erotica, and, like you said, was shot over two hot August days during Madonna's birthday between a few different locations in Miami, the Eden Rock Hotel and Big Time Studios. So Patrick, as a photographer, is known for this adoration of women. You know, he, he creates these sort of safe and uplifting environments on set. And so in order to do that, the production has to be quite small. And that was the case with this shoot. So a very small team, quite intimate. A lot of his work is very female driven. He said himself, his main drive is to create this seductive experience that makes the subject feel like a dot goddess. And I feel like you can really see that in this imagery, the main photo shoot for bedtime stories that ended being used. The main image is closely cropped and tilted for the cover, but the original one, which is wider, is Madonna reclining on a bed. And there's a lot of controversy about what the right way up the album cover should have been. I got myself into a bit of a hole looking at a forum where people over many years argued back and forth as to which way it was meant to be. But the one that I have and the one that I've seen the most is her face upward. So they'd turned the shot upside down to be the correct way up, if you will. The way Patrick works, I've talked to people who have assisted him and they have said that he really likes to catch a moment. So by that, I mean, he lets the model be natural. It's spontaneous. He doesn't like images that look too forced or overly labored. And I think, again, you can see that with Madonna in this shoot, particularly as you look through the series of images that are inside the CD in Lycard. It's the first time we really get a proper full range of images from one shoot with Madonna. And it's quite playful and fun. You know, she's smiling a lot. She's laughing. 
And I feel like, as you suggested, you know, it's part of this conscious move to be a little bit more mainstream after erotica and have more accessibility, I guess, to her personality. So, so yeah, this landed in the middle of her 36th birth. It was shot over two days and she threw a party for herself at the end of the second day. Guests were told not to bring cameras, but of course there was a photographer there and some photos ended up leaking. So there's some really great photos of her with Gianni Versace and she's wearing one of his dresses, the blue, darker blue silk dress that she has in some of the outtakes of this bedtime story shoot is the one that she wears on her birthday night and her hair is all slicked back still. Apparently she ended up stripping off and eating a lot of cake that's exposed in these photos too. I've not seen it though. And Sam McKnight, the man who did hair on the shoot, who's another big, huge, you know, part of the fashion industry, has jokingly said that one of his biggest regrets is not going to that party because he had a job to go to in New York and had to fly off. So he missed her 36th birthday. I think my favorite image from the series is not the cover image, actually, even though I think it works well as a cover image, is the photo of her with her hands half covering her face, clasped, and you just see one eye and her legs kicked up in the background. My sister had this on cassette tape with a baby blue plastic background. And I mean, I was maybe eight, seven or eight. And I remember looking at that, not knowing who the woman was, but really loving that photo in particular. And I'm sort of resistant to maybe reference Marilyn too much because I, I could do it so often with Madonna photo shoots. But one shoot that Marilyn has done, which really sticks in my mind, was called The Hooker Sitting, shot in LA in 1956 by Milton H. Green. And I feel you can really get that photo being on the mood board for bedtime stories. You know, it's, it's very, that sort of um, glamorous, but quite edgy, raw looking feminine presence. Do you think there is a mood? Yeah. Do you think there is a mood board, uh, Peter? Do you think they, when they did album covers, they had a mood board? Or do you think, you know, how is it? I think that's a Jonathan question because for the shoot, definitely. Do you you want to take that question now? No, I just, just, it's not the best question in the world. It just came to me all of a sudden. And the actual way I was going to bring you in, uh, and we'll come back to the photos, obviously, was to say it's quite unusual to put a photo on a cover upside down. And there would have been some discussion about that because obviously she's upside down in the picture and someone will have thought, well, that will look odd on the cover. Yeah. Uh, the, the urban myth that I've heard <laughs> through the annals of time, um, the way that you used to deliver artwork to press was that the printer had to reload the imagery on his end. So as the photo was loading, I can imagine he would think, oh no, that photo's upside down. Better turn that round. That's the version that I've heard. I can well believe it, but it does seem that the first few prints of it did go out the way God intended, but then it was recorrected. <laughs> um, I think I prefer the upside down one because I think the connection with the eyes is better. There's something off about her eyes when it's put the right way around, which is always disconcerting. But I think it's a beautiful photograph. I think it's a bit of a failure of graphic design. I think it really dates it. Unfortunately, it was Fabian Barron who is responsible for this one as well. So it was a continued relationship, but because things had moved on and we were now mid nineties, I don't think the coolness of graphic design in the mid nineties really fitted with this image. 
So everyone else was doing white space. If you look at the other albums from this year, like I think Kylie Minogue's Kylie Minogue album is a good example. That was done by a company called Faro, and it's all white space, beautiful, simple typography in Helvetica. So Fabian has done the same thing. It's still that heavy use of Helvetica, but unfortunately he doesn't have the beautiful white space to play with. He's kind of played with it on the inside where there's that repeat of the, the word mark and the, the overlapping. But I've always found it a challenge as a cover. So it's very hard to actually read bedtime stories. And then when you flip it over and actually have to read the tracks, even me, an avid graphic designer back in like 1994, mm-hmm. you really struggle to read the tracks on the back because he's, he's kerned them and pushed the words together. Smash Hits was doing this at the same time, whether they stole it off him or not. But it, 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 as, a, as a font, Helvetica is really plain and simple and really easy to work with. But this feels overworked and as if it was trying to be something. If he'd have done the same effect with the, the die dot font that he'd used in Erotica, I think it would have been a, a beautiful piece of design. But it just doesn't quite work on this. And I've never felt that the two come together brilliantly well. It's a beautiful photo shoot. And then this type just feels awkward over the top of it. So I think she was, her vision for what it was, was really, really beautiful and the, the, the photography work. But I think, unfortunately, the, the graphic design in, in, on this album has not helped. One thing that I think has really rescued it was the, and Jonathan mentioned it earlier, it was the first time I'd ever seen the inlay being pink or blue. And I think that was the thing that made it into a piece of graphic design. Somebody had thought about it as a piece of packaging and then just having this blue inlay tray or a pink inlay tray just made it really like it, it did sell the whole idea of like a bedtime story that it was something not childlike, but something soft. And it was really lovely to see that. I don't have positive feelings towards the artwork. It's very hit and miss. The photo is far more successful than typography. It just feels as if it was the end of his type of design, but he'd not quite found his next foot in what that simple modernity was going to be. He did do because he's an incredible designer and then went on to work with like Calvin Klein and everything being so minimal and clean. But this sort of falls into like this weird mid nineties mishmash. It's, it's not the clean coolness and it's then not the rough detailed work. So it's a, it's a, it's a bit of an all over the shop, but I still think it's a, a great moment in his career. Well, what I wonder, and perhaps we'll never know is whether he was being pulled in many directions because we know, and Jonathan, you might have more about this, that the entire direction for the album cover had changed once already. Um, on the advice of the record company, what can you tell us about the the original cover and how it? Yes, so so like you said, there was another shoot planned to be the bedtime stories cover, and it was shot not too much earlier than when this was photographed. It was around August in '94 by Paolo Reversi, and Madonna had talked actually about this shoot in an interview a few years later in the summer '99 issue of Aperture magazine saying that she'd really pushed for Paolo to be the photographer after seeing some of his work in the early 90s in Vogue Paris. And he really does this very film-based, painterly style work, quite soft. And that came through in this alternative artwork. So the aesthetic boundaries are, are pushed quite far in this very dreamlike mood. And it's a very soft 
quite feminine, ethereal looking imagery. And when the record company saw the proofs, apparently Madonna said that they thought that she looked too unrecognizable and the photos were too blurry, according to her. So they organized a reshoot with a photographer that's more conventional. And, and that is the, the result here. I do really love those Paolo photographs though. I actually prefer them to the images that we ended up getting, even though I think this is a good shoot as well. But I, in my mind, I think they fit better with both the thematic story of bedtime stories, but also the quality of the music. You know, the music itself is a much softer, sort of layered, rich sound in that R&B, mid-90s R&B way. And, and yeah, I think it fits this, this, the softness of the Paolo Reversi images. But luckily we did end up getting one of those photos as the 12 inch vinyl cover for the UK release of the Bedtime Story single. It's really strange how in the space of five years, we've gone from not even putting Madonna's face on the cover because she's so famous and that we didn't need to have her face there to her pretty much being told, no, you're going to look like you, put some heavy eyeliner on, uh, Marilyn Monroe haircut and, you know, be Madonna. And, and that's quite strange. What's really refreshing about this whole period and the way it looked is there is at least a degree of, of consistency with the single covers. Peter, I'm going to bring you in on that because obviously there's a lot of the same typefaces used and, and ideas behind the shoots. And as ever, the, the lead single, Secret, feels very much part of the Bedtime Stories cover uh, shoot and, and, and look. Yeah, I think the, the singles, it, it, we have that thing again where some territories had different versions, but there was, the, I think they tried to have consistency. It seems that from what I can work out, the, the new name that keeps cropping up on a, a lot of the covers that are done after the, the main album cover is a name called Greg Ross. Can't find very much about him, but I'm wondering maybe if he was in-house at Maverick because he seems to work across a lot of other Madonna-related artists. Um, so it would make sense. I, I think they've been able to handle and present the songs quite nice ways so um take about it does then use the really big expo expanded help version of helvetica and i think that's more successful because it's filling the space and then the once we get to human nature it's then such an iconic image from the video and such simple typography that it it's a really beautiful single cover because it's kind of perfectly uh, framed in the center lovely symmetry i think the videos that she did in this period as well are epic and it's really nice that they pick up on the imagery in the single covers so it's good to have the correlation in human nature because so much time and effort went into that video it heavily references the almost like straight version of tom of finland so it's all based <laughs> on like the rubber and the fetish wear the image is so strong it comes from inspiration which is based on eric stanton who did like these very fetish domination S&M. So to be able to have that look in the video and then also share that on the cover, it really sells that whole idea that she's taking control of her life again and this, this is me. The Bedtime Stories one, I love the fact that we did get the original image from the album shoot on the 12 inch. I don't really understand the direction of the, the flower holding and, it, it, and it's a different font and different typeface, doesn't feel quite as successful. But the, again, the video for that is so phenomenal. So much, I think it, at the time it was one of the most expensive videos ever to be shot. Mm -hmm. and the imagery is just so lush. I 
it, it was post-production it was a nightmare so it was very very late on delivery which i think is why the single cover doesn't look quite as strong if it had been able to have like the doves flying out or something like that on the cover i think we'd have reached the, a new level but yeah a, a lot of innovation she was doing so much that was like cutting edge that i think there was always going to be a bit of a disconnect between the singles because she's she's her attention is elsewhere and i think that that was for the good of the project because she did so well with things like the take bow video again it's such a beautiful storytelling piece and you can really lose yourself in it the single artwork's just so simple it didn't really need to do anything more than that so further reading further learning what would you say jonathan is a good place to to begin one's journey so i have two photo shoots that i think people should look up the first one is by bettina reams and it was shot in 1994 in hotel 17 in new york for us details magazine it ended up becoming the cover or some of the international covers of the human nature single the uk had the still from the music video. There was a rumor going around that apparently Madonna lived at Hotel 17 pre-fame. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but it does have quite a legendary status because Lee Bowery had it as his base and apparently Amanda Lepore has lived there. But it was shot that Madonna had found the photographer, Bettina, through a book that she'd released called Chambre Close, which was photographs of anonymous women that she had street cast taken in Paris and it has a very similar energy to this photo shoot and they tried to arrange the shoot in Paris but they couldn't get it where a hotel was available and it had the right aesthetic so they shot in New York to coincide with Madonna's schedule but they had to almost recreate this Paris style in a New York hotel so Bettina has this great story of flying out to New York with rolls of newspaper and setting up the room like this Parisian hotel room. She said it was one of the longest shoots she'd ever done and she was exhausted by the end, but they took so many photographs it would be enough to make a whole book. And by the end, she was saying, right, we're wrapped, let's go. And Madonna was loving it apparently so much that she kept on going. So they shot a whole new rolls of film, a whole bunch more rolls of film. And Madonna, when she saw the proofs, when she saw the proofs of the shoot, she'd approved the majority of the images, you know, she, she apparently loved them. I mean, it's a shame because as Bettina says, not a huge amount of photographs from that shoot have been seen, but I had to have some fantasy of her doing a book of the whole shoot from the end. But she said that Madonna was just brilliant energy, great ideas, great chemistry. And, and I loved the shoot. And in some ways, actually, I think that easily could have been the main artwork for bedtime stories. So my other further reading comes from the similar time period, but not quite associated with bedtime stories, but it's early 94 and I feel like it's, it deserves attention because it's one of my favorite shoots Madonna's ever done shot by Peter Lindbergh. It's the only time he ever worked with her and it's quite recognizable. You know, if you've seen it, you will remember that you've seen it all black and white shots, very graphic, very striking, a lot of movement. It was part of a Harper's Bazaar shoot called Madonna in Motion, which was an homage to Martha Graham, marking a hundred years since she was born. And so the photos are inspired heavily by dance. And there's photographs in a studio, some really close portraits and some on the beach with quite sort of abstract clothing. 
And I feel like it almost doesn't look like Madonna again, this idea of reinvention, but I love that about it. And there's some really beautiful shots of her where the skin is sort of, you can, you can see the lines in her face, you can see the humanity and it's not airbrushed at all. And she, she looks her age, you know, I love that about those very human, real images. And she's sort of wearing the same or very similar wig to the I'll Remember video shoot. Well, it's actually her actual hair. It's about a month after she'd finished the girly show, oh. uh, and she's uh, she's dyed it brown. And yeah, I think then I think the I remember video was shot like days or maybe a week or so on either side of that. So yes, because she then, I mean, if you're interested in Madonna's hair, I don't know who is, but maybe some people are out there. Yeah, she spent the whole of 1994 growing her hair back from being short. And then mid 94 suddenly gets, goes with the blonde streak again and goes down that route and then, you know, goes back to blonde for bedtime stories. So I, I, I'm quite fascinated by her hair journey in 1994. Well, if you want to see that hair journey that you're describing, there is one more shoot that I wasn't going to bother mentioning, but seeing as you brought it up, you can see those photos of her with a blonde streak perfectly in a shoot that she did for American Esquire, which came out in June 94 by Wayne Mayer. And that was shot in Soho in New York and she's got a sort of bikini on a lot of shots, some she's topless. It's this real straddling of worlds between erotica and bedtime stories. And the hair looks quite unusual, I think. Peter, where would you suggest people looked up further things around bedtime? A few things are just, this was when she was like on top of a game PR wise. Like you say, I think she knew she needed to make up the ground. So dig out Pajama Party, which is the launch of the album. Uh, every celebrity known to man in their pajamas at, at the launch. That's a very amusing watch. And then the other thing that I will post as well is a behind the scenes of human nature. And apparently her and Mondino do get on, but do have creative differences. And there's a few, <laughs> you do get a sense that it was not a particularly easy shoot. And in an interview afterwards, he actually admitted that the reason that he put her in a box so that the dancing was really restricted was so that he had control over how it would be edited because he wanted to see the dance moves and be able, be able to enjoy the movement. So being able to put it in a box forced Madonna to do what he wanted, which I think is a really <laughs> clever way of working out how to work with Madonna. So he had worked with her over time and he, he knew what he was dealing with, but I just think it was a really <laughs> nice little nod to how to get the best out of her on a bad day. <laughs> I always assumed that uh, she dyed her hair for that video, but it's actually leather straps that are tied into her hair. There's pictures. This is my uh, further reading. There are pictures taken. Uh, I think she went to a party uh, after that shoot um, and wore those leather straps in her hair for a few days. So look them up. Guys, thank you so much. I will get you back as we enter the Testino era very soon. Take a Bow was the second single released from Bedtime Stories, and coupled with that stunning video directed by Michael Hausman, saw a real change in Madonna's perception in the US, following the near-lethal triumvirate of erotica, sex and body of evidence. It's a really beautiful ballad, though it fared really poorly in the UK, reaching only number 16 at the time. A disastrous placing for Madonna. To anyone who wasn't around at the time or was too young to appreciate, you might be wondering why it did so badly in the UK. Well, the fact is that it had a really glossy but unfashionable and American sound which just wasn't very in vogue in the UK at the time. 
That might be hard to believe, but it really felt quite flat back in 1994 and as if Madonna was jumping on the boys to men bandwagon. Now, Madonna had always avoided that sound and I, for one, was much more interested in house music or the rawer sounding R&B and the indie guitar sounds which would soon be christened Britpop. All these years later, it doesn't matter and I hear it as the luscious mid-tempo classic where Madonna compares a dying love affair to the curtain call in a theatre show. Babyface, whose real name is Kenneth Brian Edmonds, was born in Indianapolis in 1959. His first musical success was writing for Bobby Brown and in 1989 he co-founded La Face Records, who signed Tony Braxton and TLC and he co-wrote and produced much of their Crazy Sexy Cool album. He was also responsible for Whitney's brilliant I'm Your Baby Tonight, but his biggest success to date came when he wrote and produced Boys to Men's End of the Road and I'll Make Love to You. Now, these songs were incredibly popular and successful, especially in the US, so it's no wonder Madonna wanted to work with him. They allegedly wrote the three songs together for the project, one of which never made the album. The other two were Forbidden Love and Take a Bow. And back in 2006, Babyface spoke with Billboard about the process. He says, Madonna was a fan of a song I did, When Can I See You? Because of that, she was interested in working with me. She came to me for lush ballads, so that's where we went. He talks about the process as well. He says, Take a Bow was just a beat and the chords. From there we collaborated and built it up. I was living in Beverly Hills and I created a little studio in my house so she came over there to write. Now Babyface continues and this is a familiar story to anybody who's listened to this podcast about how Madonna writes songs. He says, She heard the basic track for Forbidden Love and it all started coming out. Melodies and everything. It was a much easier process than I thought it would be. And of course, what beautiful songs on a beautiful album. The pair would work together again in the future. Well, we'll come to that when we're ready to. But they did sing Take a Bow together at the American Music Awards in 1995. He says, I was nervous as hell, but you couldn't actually see my legs shaking under the suit. When we finished, she told me she had never been that nervous before. That was crazy to me. I was thinking, you're Madonna on stage all the time. So what can we expect from the upcoming re-release of Bedtime Stories? Well, this was a time when Madonna's remixes really came into their own. Secret had a fantastic, sort of much faster mix by Junior Vasquez, which took it into dance territory. And of course, the mixes for songs like Human Nature and of course Bedtime Story itself are superb. It would be great to get those collected. But I think what I'm really looking forward to hearing is, and we can only hope this happens, the unreleased Shep Pettibone's songs. Will that happen? I don't know. There's quite a few allegedly out there, including Something's Coming Over Me, a song which later developed into Secret, and similarly, I Will Always Have You, a song which kind of became the song we know as Inside of Me. There's Love Won't Wait. Now, we've heard a rough version demo of that song, which was eventually given to Gary Barlow, who took it to number one in the UK. But there's some other Shep Pettibone songs, including Bring It, Good Time and Tongue Tied. Who knows? Who knows if we'll ever hear those? And there's also another Dallas Austin track that was registered called Right On Time. Perhaps Madonna will let us finally hear those songs. 
But that's it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this bedtime story. As ever, it's a real pleasure and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if you do and want to say thank you, then please pop to the website insidethegroove.co.uk where you can become a patron and you'll get the next episode, well, before everybody else and some other extra content as well. Or you can offer a one-off donation or you can check out the brilliant merch designed by Peter Falloon, which is there for every single Madonna fan. In the meantime, I'll be back soon and we'll be going to Something to Remember to talk about that Mario Testino shoot for the cover and, of course, the the album where we heard a new Madonna following the vocal training for Evita. Until then, take care.